Hey everybody, this is Stephanie. And this is Tony. And we just wanted to jump in before the podcast starts and tell you a few cool things. First thing being, we just wrapped a really cool podcast with Nancy Sakadusky. She is a local author and publisher. She has a cat and mouse publishing out of Lewis, Delaware. And right now they are running a short story contest. And we talked all about that on the podcast. So if you're interested in a short story contest in which you could win actual dollars, you should definitely check out the podcast and definitely check out the contest. It's between 500 and 3,500 words. It's got to be beach beach oriented, beachy. I'm I'm eliminated because mine are just ranty. I can't think of anything nice enough to, to submit, but I'm sure you can. Yeah, but if you go to catandmousepress.com, oh, there there's go. a, yeah, press dot com, and you click on the contest link and it'll give you all the submission guidelines. Everything is due before July 1st. So don't be one minute late with it, uh, but get it in on time. But all the, all the guidelines are right there. And the best way to get in on time is to get it in early. If you have uh, something laying around that you've been working on, something you've been toying with, something you've been submitting unsuccessfully, maybe give it a good dusting off, have a friend look at it, and then, uh, and then submit it. You, you can submit it this very second. You can hit pause. Don't hit stop. You can hit pause, submit it, come back. We'll still be here. I've got another word that comes right after this one. The word is please submit now. We have a special guest returning. Yeah, we've got Michael O'Leary coming back to the podcast. Uh, if you don't remember, back in November, we did a podcast with Michael O'Leary. He played Dr. Rick Bauer on the CBS daytime drama Guiding Light. He was here talking about a play that he had written and directed and was involved with uh, out of the University of Maryland theater program. And so he's been coming back to the area doing actors workshops because he had a really good reception here. Everybody on Delmarva was super nice to him. He's been doing actors workshops and that sort of thing. So he's going to come back on the podcast. We're going to be recording that one on April 12th, which will be released a few days after that. And then the actual actors workshop will be on Saturday, April 29th from 1 to 5. The, the, the workshop is going to be here at Saltwater Media. And as always, please uh, make sure that you are liking the podcast, subscribe to the podcast. And if you've done both, please take a minute and, and rate it and rate it well. Or if you don't like it, then stop listening and don't rate it at all. But uh, hopefully you like it and hopefully you'll, you'll give us a, a five-star rating on iTunes because that will make things better for us. More people will get to listen to our fun podcasts. And also send us words. We're, we're waiting for words from you so we can send you limericks. If you don't know what to do, Stephanie will tell you. You can go to the so what's your story podcast.com webpage and there will be a contact us form where you can fill out your name, email, pick a word, send it to us. Tony will do a limerick. I will make that word into a haiku. We're going to put it on a postcard, slap a stamp on it and put it in the mail. And uh, that's all we have, I think. So um, here's Nancy Sagadusky. We only publish a few books a year, so I turn most things away. Sometimes I'll see a writer that I think has promise, and I'll actually approach the writer. That's happened several times through the contest where I found writers that I thought were a perfect fit. They weren't necessarily the writers who won, by the way. They were just writers whose work appeared in the book. Um, and for whatever reason, I thought that they would lend themselves. Hi, this is Stephanie Fallon. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, the stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have Nancy Sakadusky, an award-winning writer and owner of Cat and Mouse Press in Lewis, Delaware. She has authored 24 books in her writing career and earned national acclaim for several of her works. 
Her company publishes books of regional interest and produces a curated online newspaper for authors called Writing is a Sure Thing. One of the largest endeavors for Nancy and her press is the annual Rehoboth Beach Reads Short Story Contest, which is now open for submission. So welcome to the podcast, Nancy. Hi, I'm delighted to be here, Stephanie. I find it interesting that you have been a writer for so long, and then also in 2012, you opened Cat and Mouse Press. Yes. Well, like a lot of writers, I became rather disappointed and disenchanted with the commercial publishers I was dealing with. I found they wanted me to do more and more, and they did less and less. And I also, in addition to being a writer, had a business background. So I thought to myself, you know, maybe I could do this better or at least different. So I started the press in part because I wanted to work with authors in a way that was more collaborative and more uh, supportive than what I was getting from commercial publishers. You're the traditional model, and I'm more of the self-publishing model. But as I went through and as a, as a writer, I had to self-publish. And I remember thinking, why is it so hard? Why doesn't anybody mm-hmm. give you like a – why does anybody hold your hand and say, if you want to do this crazy thing – this is how you should do it. And these are some of the things you should avoid. And these are some of the things maybe you should try and think about and mistakes to not make. Cause when I went through the process, there were some mistakes that I did make sure. uh, and some things that I didn't, but I, I certainly identify with that impetus to say, you know what? I, I think maybe I could, I think maybe I could do this a little better. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I certainly share that experience of having made some mistakes and learning from them and thinking about now, how can I do this in a better way and in a way that's more supportive for writers? And there's so many talented writers in this area. That's the other thing. I could see that the talent was here. It was just a matter of coming up with some vehicles that would support the kinds of writing we have around here. Sometimes people kind of see Delmarva as sort of a backwoods, backwater Mm, kind of place. Mm -hmm. But what I really find is that there is a really vibrant writing community here. And I think you come from Rehoboth, which yes. has its, an incredible writing yes. community up and up there. And not only that, but an incredible reading community. Yes. And one of the things that I found missing, actually, was the sort of light beach reads that people like to read when they vacation. There actually were fair, you know, a fair number of sort of literary vehicles available to writers. But I could see that there was a, a demand for beach reads. I know when I go on vacation, I like to read fiction that takes place in the area where I'm visiting. Do you know Kim Cash by any chance? No. So Kim Cash is an author and um, she's been on the show and she was the first person that turned me on to that notion of going and reading about the place you're going to. She writes a mystery series about Ocean City. All right, there you go. And so... Now that I go, now yeah. when I go places, I'm like, oh, I have to find a book. That you know, goes it's, it's that place. one thing to read nonfiction about the area, and I, I do that as well. But there, there were a lot of books, you know, the history of the area, you know, sure. places to eat in the area, the culture of the area, and that's nice. But there's something about reading fiction that takes place in that area, maybe yeah. mentions a few places, some of the activities you plan to do. It sort of puts you in the mood and really, I don't know, makes you experience it better. I was looking at that as well when I formed the company that there was re- writers to draw from, but also readers willing to buy and wanting to read what I would produce. And also local stuff. It's not just that it was was regular stuff. What fascinates me about kind of both of what you guys do for a living is like everybody wants to be an astronaut. Everybody wants to be a writer. Nobody plays publisher. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't. Although I I will admit to having two librarians for parents. (laughs) You don't realize when you're young that someone needs to be a curator. Somebody needs to say, hey, this is what's good. Mm -hmm. This is what could use some work. 
And so and, and editors, same way. Nobody yes. says, hey, let's play editor, yes, right? Exactly. You know, it takes, I think, a little bit extra, not only to just want to do that, but also to recognize that you're going to have to give up a little bit of your regular writing to be able to yes, do I the publishing. Yes, I found that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, can, I can speak for that one myself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. How, much, how much did that play into your decision to still do publishing anyway and... Well, I, I have to say I enjoy the business part as well. I did a lot of the writing when my son was young, and then when he grew older, I sort of went back to my main job, which was marketing and marketing consulting. And so I had an MBA, I had this business background, and I do enjoy that part of it. So it was like a nice combination. I enjoy the writing, but I also enjoy the business aspects of it. And that's his publisher, you know, mm-hmm. so uh, it was kind of uh, a logical step for me. When did you launch the uh, the contest and what made you think that you wanted? Yeah, the contest was one of those ideas that the moment you have it, you realize this is a great idea. It's going to be a win-win. And it sure was because I don't remember how I first thought of it, but I guess it again, it got back to the idea of beach reads and people like to read things at the beach. People get distracted at the beach. So short stories are good. They're short snippets. You can read, you know, here and there. And I started thinking, okay, I'm going to do a collection of short stories. Stories. Now, where am I going to get these? Am I going to find an author that will write a series of short stories? And I thought, what if I had a contest, but for beach reads, right. you know, and had had the requirement that they be set in and around Rehoboth. There are lots of writers in this area. I wonder if people would submit, yeah. you know, work to me. And then I thought, what if there was a prize? And I thought, you know, I'm going to need a sponsor because it's going to have to be a nice prize to get people sure. to submit. So I went to browse about books, the big bookstore in Rehoboth, and I told them about the idea and they loved it. And right away they said, we'll be the sole sponsor. We'll put up the cash money. And they've been very generous from the very beginning. They put up $500 for first prize and we've actually add to, added to it. So it's now 250 for second and 100 for third. And that helps draw some great talent. Right, yeah, I would agree. Yeah. But also a lot of people, for a lot of people, publication is the real prize. We publish 20 to 25 stories in each book. So it's a nice opportunity for people to get published. And they're fun books for people to read. They really are very popular. This contest has a panel of judges. So what you get is you're not just like submitting it and then you have no idea how these stories are getting picked. Right. You're actually being judged by legitimate authors and publishers authors and yeah people who do this thing yeah so this year Mm -hmm. um there are six judges and for example they've been on the podcast bill peak or william peak and barbara lockhart are actually two of the judges that are going to be there and we both know they've both been on the podcast and they're incredible writers yes yes incredible their work is astounding yeah, yeah. They're, they're new judges this year i was very excited about having them join us i try to switch up some of the judges each year so it's always six and i try to get people that are spread geographically and their backgrounds are different so i i take out sort of personal preference mm. in part of the judging but we always have a, a a good panel of judges we've got a really really good panel this year yeah all right so we're dancing around so Stephanie's yeah also yeah, a judge. yeah. <laughs> So we don't have to keep making eyes at one another exactly, about who's exactly. going to say Stephanie's a judge too. Stephanie's and you know, a judge and yes, she's a and, good publisher. And so, yeah. So this year, uh, Nancy asked me to, to be a judge. And honestly, I took that as a huge compliment. And I just took it as such a huge honor that, number one, that I get to be considered on the same level as Bill Peake and Barbara Lockhart. That someone right. actually be like, hey – these six people and like my name gets to be right in the middle to me that was a huge compliment and, but i think that 
having judges of the caliber of Barbara and and Bill, um, and I'm not going to say me, but well, having professionals. That, I mean, this, this place yeah. is this place is open still, right? You're not just picking awful books. No, I feel very much that you know when people are going through the self publishing process that they don't just because they're doing it themselves right. doesn't mean it needs to be done at Kinko's. You know, right. so my my job is to take people who want to self publish and try to help them make it the best that it can be. And I feel very strongly about that because you know that was. But you're also good at it. Is the point? I. Tr- try really hard yeah i'll just say that i try really hard (laughs) but i think having you know when you have a panel of judges for a short story contest that are people of that caliber i think it definitely speaks to to the contest yes and and i've been very fortunate that every year i found six very qualified people to help with the judging and what i find most fascinating actually is as a as an editor and publisher, I'm looking at producing a book, but they're looking at the stories individually and judging them individually. And yet every year we come up with the most interesting, eclectic selection of stories. I mean, it could be that we'd end up with a book that every story is, you know, a day at the beach kind of thing. And it doesn't happen that way. We end up with mysteries and fantasy and uh, historical fiction and nonfiction. And uh, we had a Sherlock Holmes story one year. We get really incredibly diverse stories and they're selected individually just on their own, but together they really work as a book every single year. And so this year, um, to make sure that everybody out there who's listening, they've got to get it in before July 1st. July 1st, midnight. I'm rock solid on both the deadline and the word count, which is between 500 and 3,500 words. And I do that to be fair to everybody. And I actually get people, believe it or not, submitting at, you know, 11.59 on (laughs) July 1st. I thought you were going to say 11,590 words. No, it seems like it. But, you know, I do get 3,400. 99 words too, but um, I wish people wouldn't wait to the last minute, but they do. But if they come in one minute after they're bounced, I can't, I can't be fair to everybody without yeah. being fair to one. So, you know, it, it's July 1st. All the, the guidelines are on the website, catandmousepress.com. And I try to be very transparent about our judging, how the contest works. I have lots of tips on the website. The guidelines are all spelled out. It's a very uh, clear process how to submit it. It's a $10 fee per entry, and you can submit up to three. I have come to a new kind of appreciation, having been kind of on both sides of the coin about the submission fee. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that $10 is is a fair fee. I, Absolutely. When, when, when you're an author and you're trying to especially if you're submitting for a cash prize contest, first of all. But even when you're submitting for anything, you, I think at some level have to say, I think this is worth reading. Now, if I'm mm-hmm. submitting something on spec, that's different. But I used, to have, I used to be very, very anti-submission fees until people started submitting stuff to me. Well, there's another side of it. I give, yeah. uh, I give workshops actually on, on contests, writing contests and on uh, short story writing. And one of the things I tell people, if, if, if the contest is free... And it's being run by a company, a for-profit institution. That's a red flag. How are they making their money? Right. Why are they doing it? They're making money somehow. Oh yeah. They're so either either they're gonna fiction. they're gonna require you to give up your rights to the story so they can have free content, or they're gonna sell your information to somebody else. You'll get spammed to death, or they're gonna try to sell you something: coaching services, right. editing services, a self-publishing package. They, they've got some angle. So a free contest to me is as big a red flag as one that. It has an exorbitant fee. And when you put it that way, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, no, it, it totally does. And and so I've come to recognize that the fees are... I guess it was weird because I guess back before Spellcheck when only 
there were just a fewer writers, I guess, is mm-hmm. probably the kindest way to put it. It wasn't so it wasn't such a big deal. But now I'm I just I, I mean, I edit a website and I just get a fantastic amount of submissions that I couldn't possibly use. And I always yeah. want to say, I wish I could charge you a dollar just because I had to open your stupid email, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I I tried to come up with a fee that I felt was fair and yet covered the basic cost that I, because I do have it professionally copy edited, even Mm -hmm. even though I'm a pretty good editor, I send it to somebody else who's a professional. We have a professional designer on the book. The illustration on the cover is an original illustration done just for the book. So there are some expenses, you know, at the beginning that I wanted to be sure I had covered before I went through the, the contest to make sure it would work for me financially. Speaking of just the general submission process, so one day you weren't a publisher and then the next day you're like, hey, everybody send me your books and I'll judge them for actually, you. Actually, that's an interesting point. I, <laughs> I published a, two books actually of my own first. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be sure if I made mistakes, I'd make them on my own books. So the first two books I did, I founded the company in the end of 2012 and in 2013, the first two books were books I had written so that I could work the kinks out. And then I started the contest and started publishing other people's books. But I wanted to be sure I knew at least a little bit of what I was doing. But how do you get the word out? Just, do you just put your name in the writer's digest or whatever? Or? <laughs> well, keep in mind, uh, you know, one reason I focus on Delmarva region books is it's easy to market to that area. Mm. I can't, you know, realistically market outside this area. So I'm looking for books that have a connection to the Delmarva region usually the coastal areas. And by limiting it that way, I can focus what I'm doing and get my name out. And, you know, through me, through things like this podcast, people learn about me. They see the books in the stores. They pick up a book, they read it, and they say, wow, this is really good. <laughs> you know, it's not just a local book. It's a good right. book. Absolutely. And so, you know, bit by bit, the word gets out both to readers and to writers. One thing that I found about Delmarva is that once you find the writing community here, the word of mouth is incredible. Yeah. And Whether I do a lot of resources for writers too. I have an online newspaper writing is a sure yep. thing. And I do a newsletter and I, I do a lot of, I do some workshops. So I do interact a lot in the writing community where people meet me and, and learn what I do as well. One of the things that I absolutely love about that concept is you're curating stuff for writers. Right. You, you're, tools of the trade and yep. how we do this thing and what to, what are red flags when you approach things. So could you tell me a little bit about what pressed you to kind of say, hey, I'm going to make this thing for writers and be like, hey, you need to know this. Well, there's a tremendous amount of information on the internet about writing. A lot of people want to learn about writing. So there's blogs, there's websites, there's, you know, if you look at Twitter and put in the hashtag writing, you'll, you, know, you can't even keep up with it. You can't even read them it's, as fast. It's almost as unsearchable. Yeah. And so to the average writer who wants to just, you know, improve the, the skills, get some new tools, find some resources, learn a little bit more about what they're doing, it's a little overwhelming. So what I try to do is it's a curated newspaper. I'm pulling from content all across the country and in some cases other countries. And I try to get a good mix every week. It comes out Saturday morning. I try to get a good mix of the writing craft, ideas about submissions, ideas about technology, things like, you know, doing an author website, how to use Twitter, how to use Pinterest, uh, how to use some of the mechanical or digital ways to write and edit. I do post some local events in there, local meaning Delmarva and a little bit of New Jersey. Some things about short stories, because that's sort of in my wheelhouse. If I see things on that, I include those. Definitely information on self-publishing and the business of writing, how to be professional, how 
how to how to run a writing business, how to submit, how to do the various aspects of writing. So I do a combination of all those every week, and it comes out Saturday morning. It's called Writing is a Sure Thing, S-H-O-R-E, and that's the domain, writingisashorething.com. And it's free. People can subscribe to it, but all that means is that Saturday morning, as soon as the issue is published, they'll get an email that has sort of the listing of the the articles. And once they click on it, it takes them right to the original article. None of this is stuff I'm writing. I want to make that clear because people sure. say, wow, how do you do all that? Well, it's, <laughs> it's all stuff that experts around the country have written that I think are worth reading. So I'm just picking and choosing and then putting it up there. But I think that makes it all the more, more valuable because as you were saying, finding things about writing yes. on the internet is nearly impossible. It's if If I were you, I would just sit down and knock knock out 15,000 words a week because yeah. it probably would take less time to find yeah. qual- than, than it does to find Well, people work. tell me that that's what they really like about it is it saves them a tremendous amount of time and they like what I pick. A lot of people actually print it out, believe it or not. I, I, they I, I save, so they it. make notebooks on, by topic. I mean, it gets a little crazy, but <laughs> it is really, a, a, I think, a useful tool for writers. And I do try to get both information for beginning writers as well as people who are quite experienced and are looking at really subtle, like, different points of view and things about you know narrative structure and that kind of thing, and also a little bit of nonfiction and writing for children. So I try to balance that as well. Tony and I have kind of talked about this in, in times previous that writing is a very solitary process. Yes, you know it's not something that somebody can do holding your hand or whatever. I mean that is a, it's a very you and the page knocking it down every right. day. So I think having something when you can kind of come out of that vacuum a little bit and you can say okay. Here's here's this curated thing that will kind of help me kind of be inspired. It will mm-hmm. help me know that I'm in the right direction. When I'm writing songs, it feels so much like I'm in a void, like I'm the mm-hmm. only person on the planet doing this. I know I'm not, but you mm-hmm. feel like that. And so then to be able to connect with other people saying, hey, if you're doing this, this is how you do it well. Yeah, and I actually uh, include some articles in the paper every week about writer's block, depression, isolation, music to listen to when you're writing, things like that that get to that solitary experience and how to deal with that. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, some of us drink whiskey and, yeah. you know, <laughs> and keep knocking it down. Let's but... not get into that. Uh, the whiskey's incidental to the writing. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> so I have a blog post that's going to come out this week, and I probably should just tell you guys right now because it's about uh, traditional versus independent publishing. Having done this show for a while, you get to get a view of both sides and i my books were tra- were traditionally published and the point that the point that my story is about is whether you're traditionally published or whether you publish independently you have to invest more than just typing the words and then hoping that someone reads it and yes and it, this is not only true for a small publisher, very small publisher like me. It is true of the biggest publishers. I've, I've been told that one of the first things they look at when they're considering a submission is the author's following on Twitter, the yeah. author's following on Facebook. They're looking at the same thing. They want a, an author that is going to help push the book and help promote it. So at my level, I, I look at that to some extent. Of course, I look at 
you know, does the author have some basic skills, obviously, but also does has the author published anything? How well was that received? Does the author have a following? Um, I do look at that because I think that is part of it. No matter how small you are, you need to get the word out. I do, a, a, you know, quite a bit of marketing in terms of getting news releases in the paper and submitting things for awards. We just won a whole raft of awards from the Delaware Press Association for some that. of our books. Yeah, yeah I did too. You know, I do that kind of thing to try to get us visibility, but I do expect the authors to step up and do what they can to help promote the book and help sell the book, do signing events and things like that. Absolutely. That ship sailed a long time ago. <laughs> and none of us are on Might it, have been right? the Mayflower, really, because, yeah. you know, it, it really has always been part of it, but it's certainly a lot bigger part of it now. Well, and it's also, I think, something that authors don't realize, or um, it's something that this author didn't realize. Yeah. And then uh, this author was surprised that no one bought his book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I don't know what yeah. I expected, but... I didn't realize that the effort has to go in on both ends. And yep. that's kind of what the Yeah, what you the can't just build it and they'll come. Right. And I'll tell you, uh, that what's really working against all of us is that self-publishing actually has become too easy. Yeah. And literally anything can be published. And the poor bookstores are having people come in every day. You know, here's my book. Where do you want me to put it? You know, right. And they yeah. just assume that the bookstores are going to carry it. And in certainly not all, but in many cases, it's not properly edited. It's not properly designed. It's got a lousy cover. It's got you know various flaws that make it impossible yeah. for a bookstore to sell it. And, it. and it reflects on the bookstore. They don't want people coming back saying, why did you sell me this thing? It's hard to get through that and get a reputation where the bookstores know that what you're producing is quality and that they don't have to worry about carrying your book. Once you get over that hurdle, it makes it a little easier. It's always fun to come in here and see Stephanie agonizing over how she's going to tell someone that they're going to have to give a little bit on the cover. Like, yeah. I can't make you be a good writer, but, but I can make the book look good. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I see that, you know, on the on this side, you know, I, there's a lot of things that have come across my desk. And there have been some clients that I'm like, yeah, we just can't maybe work together because your perception or your concept of this, I'm not sure is going to work. And I think one of the things that I try to take seriously as a self-publisher is sort of being honest with the client yes. and saying, hey, look, if you self-publish, I mean, you're not going to run through thousands and thousands of books. You know, yeah. the best way to do this is to try to like start small and plug along and mm -hmm. see what the response is. Let's make sure we get it, you know, with a decent cover and, yeah. and edit and a proper layout, you know, and, and try to build the thing to be the best that it can be and then kind of plot along because, I mean, that's, yeah. I think, how, how most people have to approach it. But, I mean, I do think you're right. I mean, there's stuff out there that is just like, how did that happen? Yeah. You know? And people have to really improve their craft. Writing looks easy. It's not easy. Writing books for children looks easy. It's not easy. I would never and dare to even try that. People really have to work it. And even experienced writers work it. They continue to learn. They continue to read. They continue to have critiques. And writers that just sit at home in their bedroom and write something out and then say, okay, it's ready to publish without you know, really learning the craft and getting input are headed for disappointment because that's not the real world. It's, it's, it takes a lot of time to learn and you got to keep learning all the, all the way along. I think it was Margaret Atwood and she said she was at a party one time and this guy said something like, oh, what do you do? She's like, oh, I'm a writer. And he was like, yeah, you know, I think when I retire, I'm going to yeah. be a writer. She's like, well, yeah, when I retire, I'll just try brain surgery. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and it's exactly. kind of like the writing is not just like, oh, whatever. I'm just, you know, it's yeah. it, it involves honing a craft just like any other Absolutely. profession. 
Yeah, I think it's misleading that it's mechanically easy to do. Right. I mean, most anybody can physically write, but to write well in a way that other people would like to read is an entirely different thing. When clients approach Cat and Mouse Press, when when they approach you, you know, with a with a prospective novel, what are some of the things that you're looking for in order to say, hey, I think this might be a doable project for my press? Well, the first thing is it has to fit with my mission, which is to supply. We call ourselves a playful publisher. So fun books that have a connection to the Delmarva region. So firstly, it has to have some connection to the Delmarva region. I'm not going to publish a book on the War of 1812 or, you know, the Mayan culture or something like that. (laughs) I got a submission today. I won't go into the details, but it was clearly somebody who had not gone on the website to see what I published. It had absolutely no connection to the area. And so, you know, right away I say, this could be the best book in the world, but it doesn't fit what I publish. And this is true. Any writer submitting anything, the first thing you should do is look at what the publisher publishes and look at what their guidelines say about what they're accepting. The other thing I get is a lot of submissions of children's books. And right on the website, again, it says we're not accepting children's books right now. For one thing, it's very difficult for me to do a children's book because it's so expensive because I've got to pay the author, the illustrator, the production in full color. So we accept very few anyway. Authors that have not done that basic research, I mean, that's a problem right there. And I try to be helpful to tell them where I've I've referred people to you, Stephanie, definitely for people who, you know, had something that sounded more like a self publishing project. Uh, For the most part, I look at the connection to the area, whether it's, again, a light read. I'm not looking for how my spouse died of brain cancer kind of stuff. I I know it's important that people write books like that and people read books like that, but that's not what I do. So again, things that fit. And I know it's like they say, I I know it when I see it. Right. I know it when I see it. And we publish very little. We're very small. We only publish a few books a year. So I turn most things away. Sometimes I'll see a writer that I think has promise and I'll actually approach the writer. That's happened several oh, times wow. through the contest where I found writers that I thought were a perfect fit. They weren't necessarily the writers who won, by the way. Mm-hmm. They were just writers whose work appeared in the book. Right. Um, and for whatever reason, I thought that they would lend themselves. The book uh, Sandy Shorts by Nancy Sherman came about that way. She ended up having actually two stories chosen because, of course, the judges don't know who's submitting it, so they didn't know they'd chosen two from the same writer. And I thought, well, that speaks highly of her. And then she had a voice that really lent itself to what I was doing. And so I talked with her, and we developed a concept for it, and it became a book. Also, the Sea Sprite Inn, Lynetta Dare's novel, that book came about. She was a winner in the contest with a really clever short story called The Magical Suit mm. about this woman. It's the kind of story any woman can identify with. You go to the beach, you're you know, you're looking for a swimsuit. There's that awful moment where you're looking in the mirror and she's told that this suit has magical properties that all sorts of wonderful things happen. So it's a very clever story. She had a good voice for beach reads. So we ended up doing a book of hers. So it comes about that way too, where I, I read the writer and, and sense that they're a good fit for us. Now, when I got my second book published, it was really just a question of reaching out and saying, hey, this is what I have in mind next. What do you think? Does that work with Oh, yeah. I mean, I work very collaboratively. So a lot of times it, it goes back and forth several times. For example, the Sea Sprite Inn, Lynette O'Dare's book, started out, the concept was a series of short stories. And as she wrote it, it became clear that her concept of uh, an, a bed and breakfast owner had an overarching story that was more like a novel. Mm. And we made the individual chapters were sort of short stories of guests coming and going. And so the individual stories are self-contained stories of those guests. But there is an over 
overarching story that carries through those stories of the inn owner and her life and what's happening, and there's a little mystery involved. And so it, it ended up being a novel. So it actually changed the, the entire structure of the book. That's how Bill Pete got the Oblitz confession done, was Ron Souter actually yeah. found him. He had read exactly. some of his poetry. Yeah, Ron works very similarly. Yes. Yeah, Ron Souter of Seacombe Publishing. He, he kind of approached Bill, and Bill was like, is this, a, is this for real? Yeah. You know, yeah. But see, that, that's what's fun about you know small local publishers. We're a lot more flexible and adaptable. Something that, like I just described with Lynette, that would never happen with a big publisher. Right. I mean, they would be back at her. We no, we we contracted for a series of short stories. You go write those short stories and then come back and talk to us. Oh, yeah. You know, but the idea of that back and forth, and to me, it it makes a better product because both the author and the publisher are ending up with something that's better than either one of them envisioned on their own. And you also both have skin in the game. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I was just about to make that comment. Like, every, both are bearing a responsibility yes. to, to ensure the success of the project. It was even more the case on the children's uh, picture book we did, The Mermaid in Rehoboth Bay, where the illustrator and I worked t- together. And it's, it's especially important on a children's book because you want the words and the pictures to work together but not duplicate. And so that went back and forth for, oh, yeah. probably a year and a half. I think it was two years in total to produce that book because there was a lot of back and forth and discussions and we decided there were several areas where the illustration would stand on its own there'd be no words and you would never know that writing it or doing the illustrations by yourself it had to be collaborative yeah kids books are tough they are they're 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 misleadingly simple looking but to do them right is very challenging it certainly is i've seen i've seen many kids books comes across and i've seen very few that were really, really well done, and, and most I'm sort yeah. of like, yeah, I'm not sure you yeah. really kind of got it yet, but you know, keep keep plugging along. <laughs> yeah, a lot of times people make the mistake of they have a lesson they want to teach, they have a, a moral or a you know a religious lesson or some sort of something they want to you know teach the kid, and you know. You and I don't like to read books about cleaning up our rooms. Why would they? Right. You know, right. and the st- stories like that don't resonate with kids. It has to have. It can have a little message in there, but just like when we read novels, you want that message to sort of be subtle, right? And it's not written just to make you behave, you right? Know? Right. Yeah. No, that reminds me. Like um, Barbara Lockhart actually said the same thing. You know, and I was mm-hmm. talking about. I think maybe we even did on the podcast. I said, you know. To me, writing a kid's book and then writing a book of fiction or nonfiction for an adult, to me, seems like a pretty big jump. And she said, writing for kids is much harder. Yeah. And I was like, well, how do you kind of get into that? She's like, you know, I'm like, what is your approach? She's like, I don't do a moral. She's mm-hmm. like, there's no point writing a kid's book with a moral. She's like, yeah. you know, that that's just going to be, uh, that's, that's a killer right there, yeah, you know? Yeah. So, and that's not to say the message can't be there on the mermaid book. We definitely had very specific messages. We wanted, we wanted it to be uh child appropriate for the, the, the age of the children. A lot of the mermaid books are, you know, mature women when they're depicted the little mermaid even, you know, is, a, is, is mature looking for the sure. age group. And so we wanted childlike figures. We wanted it to be a, a female empowerment story. So there's no boyfriends or parents or anybody saving them. They have to work out their problems together. I wanted the girls to be non-idealized. I didn't want, sorry, Stephanie, a blonde, yeah. blue-eyed mermaid because <laughs> we see that all the time. So right. we have a mermaid who's got red hair and freckles. 
And the girl that's her friend is sort of a multi-ethnic looking girl who lives on the beach. And so you've got sort of untraditional, we don't talk about that. It's not mentioned. It's not, hey, kids, look, you can be friends with people who don't look like you. But that's sort of a subtle message in there. And the idea of solving your own problems and working things out. Now, if I'd said this in the book, you know, kids lose interest, but they get the message when they read it. Yeah, yeah, that, that's the whole point of the thing. Do you know what's even harder to write than a children's book? One of your limericks. You would have no idea how much time I spent on these things. Uh oh. Uh oh. <laughs> Well, if you are listen to the podcast and you and you like what you hear, you can certainly go to the so what's your story podcast.com. There's a contact us form there and if you do your name and your email, you pick a word. Tony will write a limerick, probably not with a mermaid in it, but uh, you never know. And then I'll do a haiku and we'll put it on a postcard. We'll pay a man to bring it to your house. Just like it's, uh, you know, old times. Maybe he'll bring it on a pony, like maybe, pony mail. In it, maybe 1850. But, uh, all right. Well, now, Stephanie, this is the part of the show where you thank the guest. Well, Nancy, thank you so much for coming thank and being you. a part of, the, part of the podcast and talking about the short story contest and Cat and Mouse Press. Thank you. It was a delight to be here. Thank you. So what's your story is recorded week now. That's an old one, no, isn't it? Every single time. <laughs> Try to free, free it and you never, never get it. Uh, so what's your story was recorded. So what's your story was recorded at Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit us at so what's your story podcast.com where you can find past episodes, guest bios, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher Radio, and if you like it, then feel free to give us a great review. Tell your story.